Now, last week as we talked about the flood, we looked at three powerful aspects of the, the end of the story, if you will, when the floodwaters began to abate and Noah, uh, once he knew there was dry land, uh, came off of the ark with his family. The first powerful aspect that we looked at last week was that God remembers. God remembers his promises, which is really good news for all of us. God never forgets. He never fails when it comes to keeping his word. God remembers. He remembered his promise to Noah to save him, to preserve him and his family through the flood. Then we said last week that Noah worships. Noah worships when he uh, gets off the ark. The first thing he does is he builds an altar and he worships God. But the third powerful aspect of the story, as the story comes to a close, is that God makes a covenant with Noah. God makes a covenant with Noah. Now, there is a lot here. We're going to talk a lot about covenants tonight. And I'm really excited because I think tonight is going to really help you to understand not just this story, but understand the totality of God's Word better. Have you ever heard the phrase that you can be so caught up uh, looking at the trees, you miss the forest. You ever heard that phrase used? Well, we're going to look at the trees tonight, and we're going to study Genesis chapter 9, but we're going to, as we discuss covenants, kind of step back and look at the, the big picture, look at the forest. And I think we're going to understand our Bibles better tonight because of what we're going to say. So I'm really excited to walk you through what the Bible says about the covenants that God has made with us. But let's study this specific covenant in Genesis chapter 9. Turn there with me. I'm going to read a few verses, then we will make some comments. Genesis chapter 9. Let's see how many how many uh, school employees do we have in here tonight? We got any school employees? Okay, yeah. Getting close. Getting close. All right. I saw an amen over there. Amen. So it's been a great year, great year. Proud of you guys for persevering through another year. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, the Bible says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And so we see there's a biblical rationale uh, for eating meat. We don't have to be vegetarians. Isn't that good news? If you're a vegetarian, I don't mean to offend you, but I'm really glad we can eat meat. All right? And it says, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, because... Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my... What's the word there? My covenant with you and your offspring after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my, what's the word there? Covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So we will stop there and think deeply tonight about 
the covenants that God makes with us, starting with this specific covenant. Now, I want to just say a quick word. What does the word covenant mean? You might say that's kind of a biblical word. That's not a word that we use a lot in our common vernacular. But the word covenant basically means agreement, agreement between two parties. That's what the word covenant means. And I want you to see the elements of this covenant that God makes with Noah, the elements of the covenant. There are four things here that I want you to see. First of all, I want you to see the uninterrupted continuation of the seasons. The uninterrupted continuations of the season. Now you need to back up to chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 20. The Bible says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. We talked about that last week, Noah's act of worship. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so the Lord, to, to drive home the, the, the veracity of his promise, the veracity of his covenant, that he will never again strike down every living creature with a flood, reminds us of the continuation of the seasons. Now, I come from Florida, and the seasons are not as distinct in the Sunshine State. It's, it's generally just pretty warm there year around. Uh, when we moved up to this area, we got a good feel for seasons. There were definite changes from summer into fall and from fall into winter and from winter into spring. And I've really grown to just love the changing seasons. I just love the, the rhythm of the four seasons. And just when you're ready, you know, you, you've had enough of one season. You, you go to the next and you enjoy the blessings of that season. And there's this continual cycle of seasons that revolve around what's happening in the cosmos. Our, our, our planet is, is making a big, giant rotation around the sun, and it's also turning on its axis. So as it turns on its axis, we have day and night. As it revolves around the sun, we experience the different seasons as it gets different distances away from the sun. And this is a big deal, that God reminds us of the continuation of the seasons because God uses the continuation of the seasons as an illustration of his faithfulness. For example, turn to Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah, Old Testament book of Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah 33, verse 19. The Bible says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, a prophet of God. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests. My ministers as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, the sands of the sea cannot be measured. So I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priests who minister to me. So God's saying, if you can stop the, 
the continuing order of the cosmos. If you can stop day and night, and if you can stop the seasons from happening, then it would be possible for me to break my covenant. But the point is, you can't stop the the change from day into night and from night into day. And you can't stop the continual cycle of the seasons. It's just going to happen. And God's saying, that's a reminder of my covenant. You can't stop me. You can't, you can't keep me from keeping my promises. That, that's what he's saying there. So every time you look up at the, the sky and you see the sun or the moon and you experience the, the wonderful changes of our seasons, remember that those continual changes remind us or continual uh, seasons remind us of the faithfulness of God. I like what Warren Wiersbe writes. He writes, We're prone to take for granted sunrise and sunset, the changing face of the moon and the changing seasons, but all of these functions are but evidences that God is on the throne and keeping his promises. Don't you like that? All creation preaches a constant sermon, day after day, season after season, that assures us of God's loving care. We can trust his word, for there has not failed one word of all his good promise. So the first element of this promise that God's making to Noah is, you will experience the uninterrupted continuation of the seasons, which are a reflection of my continuing faithfulness. Just like the seasons continue, I continue to keep my promises. Everybody got that? Good stuff. Here's the second element of the covenant. The command to multiply and exercise dominion over the created order. The command to multiply and exercise dominion over the created order. This is a a command that's reiterated from the days of Adam and Eve. This is, goes back to the original command that God gave Adam and Eve as to what their role was to be in the created order. So look what the Lord says in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so we know that God, created all, uh, or God destroyed all other humans through the flood and he was starting over with Noah and his family. And so he told them that you are to multiply, you are to, to fill the earth with offspring. That was God's mandate to them. And he says in verse 2, The fear of you and the dread of you shall, shall uh, be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps in the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I require a reckoning. So he's saying here that, that the, the animals and the plants, they are for you. It's your, it's your privilege and your responsibility to exercise dominion over the created order. And look what it says in verse 7. Again, you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So he's just reminding them, here's the, here's the, the commands, the, the expectations I had for Adam and Eve. And, and now that we're starting over again with you and your family, no, I want you to do what I told Adam and Eve to do. Multiply, fill the earth, exercise dominion over the created order. That's what we are called to do. Here's the third part of this covenant, the third element of this covenant, the sanctity of life. The sanctity of life. Look what it says in Genesis chapter 9, verse 5. For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Now look in verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This is a, 
a biblical warrant for the death penalty. Now, there is a lot of debate, a lot of discussion on on the uh, use of the death penalty in contemporary society. And you may know something I don't know, but just if you believe the Bible, if you believe the Bible is the word of God, it's just, to me, it's not, not that complicated of a thing. He says it very clearly here. If a man takes another man's life, then his life is to be taken by men as punishment, as deterrent against others from taking someone else's life. And he gives us the reason. Look what he says. He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. The reason this is such a big deal, the reason that the punishment is so severe is because when someone takes another person's life, they are taking the life of someone created in the image of God. And that's a big deal. So this is a reminder that every life has dignity, every life has worth, Every life has value, and we are never, ever to take the life of another person created in the image of God. And if someone does that, they are to, uh, they are to experience the, the, the devastating uh, punishment, the just punishment of the death penalty. God sanctions us here in Genesis chapter 9. Now, some people might say, well, the death penalty, that, that's part of the Old Testament law. Notice, this is before the law. This is before this is before Mount Sinai. This is before the book of Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy. This is, a, this is an ordinance that is to be in the fabric of, of humanity. That we are to hold up human life as sacred and, 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 and hold up human lives as those having great value and worth and dignity being created in the image of God. And the death penalty is a just punishment against murder. It is. And so that is a statement about the sanctity of life. Now, just to be fair, there are people that would argue vehemently with me on that point. But I, I just believe it's really clear. I, I don't know how you, how you deal with that verse uh, found there in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Uh, if, those that say that the death penalty is not a just punishment. Because I believe it is clearly uh, laid out for us in Scripture. Now, here's the, the, the next element of this covenant. The promise to never destroy humanity again by flooding. The promise to never destroy humanity again by flooding. Look what it says in Genesis chapter 9, verse 8. God said to Noah and to his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, so as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that... Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Now there's coming a day of destruction. All right? Everlasting punishment for those that do not know Christ. The old heavens, the old earth will pass away uh, by fire, and God will, will create a new heaven and a new earth. But he says, I'll never destroy humanity again by flooding. I, I will never uh, flood the entire earth to destroy all of humanity. Never again, he says in verse 11, shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so he's making this promise to Noah and to you and to me and to all of humanity. Never again will there be a worldwide flood. Never again. God tells us here in this text. He makes a covenant, a promise with Noah, and God keeps his promises, right? He never fails to keep his promises. So... We never have to worry that 
the entire world's going to flood again. Now, there, of course, is localized flooding and things of that nature, but, but never again will God cover the entire earth with water as a punishment against humanity. Now, that's the, those, those are the elements of the covenant. But let me just say a quick word about the sign of the covenant. God gave a sign to drive this point home. Look what it says in Genesis 9, verse 12. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. So he's talking to us, right? Because we are future generations. So the sign he's about to give Noah was for Noah and his family, but it's also for everyone, us in this room. So do you want to know what God's sign is for you, that he's going to keep this covenant that he made to Noah? Look what he says. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant, the sign, the reminder of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And so God says over and over again, I'm going to give you a sign. It's a bow in the clouds, a rainbow. And that rainbow is a picture that God will keep his promise. Every time you see a rainbow, you can be reminded of the faithfulness of God. Every time Noah saw a rainbow, he was reminded of the faithfulness of God, reminded that God keeps his promises. Just kind of a quick thing. Where did God get the idea of a rainbow from? Where do you think God got that idea from? I mean, he's got unlimited creativity, right? So he just imagined it in his own, in his own heart and, uh, and mind and gave it to humanity as a sign. But it's interesting to see that the rainbow shows up in Scripture in two other places. Let me show you Ezekiel. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 27. Back up to verse 26. Ezekiel here is given a a great vision as he is in captivity in Babylon. This is above the expanse over their heads, these creatures that he sees in this vision. Above the expanse over their heads, there was a likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, the rainbow. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. So Ezekiel gets this vision, a a glimpse, if you will, of the throne, the the throne of the Lord. And and there's discussion, is this a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ sitting on his throne? He gets a partial glimpse, someone kind of like a a human figure uh, on the throne. But notice around the throne, what does he see? What's he see? A rainbow. Now, turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. 
Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. This is a vision that God gives the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place. After this at once I was in the spirit. Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So again, John sees this heavenly scene. He sees the throne room of heaven. And around the throne, he sees a rainbow. And so that's where the rainbow shows up in Scripture. So it's almost as if the Lord is talking to Noah after the flood and saying, I'm making this covenant with you. I'll never again destroy the earth with flooding. And let me give you a sign. And to kind of put it in human terms, almost like God looks around. What can I give him as a sign? And he looks at the very throne room of heaven and says... I'll use the rainbow. And the rainbow becomes an everlasting reminder of God's faithfulness. It was in heaven, and now God allows us to see rainbows on the earth as a reminder of his covenant promises. So this is the the sign of the rainbow. Now there's a lot more I can say about rainbows. First off, you, you can't see a rainbow without a storm, right? You've got to have, you have clouds and, and, and some sort of water uh, and light refracting through the water to see a rainbow. And so the same God that places the rainbow in the sky places the cloud in the sky from which the rainbow emerges. It's just something to think about. Uh, and, and just a reminder that, that the rainbow emerged uh, at the end of a great storm, a, a picture of the promise of God. So this is the... The sign of the covenant. So we've seen the elements of the covenant and the sign of the covenant. Now we're going we're gonna to back up for a moment and we're going to take in the entire forest. We've looked at a tree, this specific covenant in Genesis 9 that God made with Noah. But now we're going to kind of think about covenants from a big picture perspective. So look, look with me at lessons learned from this covenant. Lessons learned from this covenant. This is where it gets fun. You ready? This covenant with Noah serves as a model for all future covenants God enters into with man. This covenant with Noah serves as a model. There are elements here that we see in other covenants that God makes. This covenant with Noah serves as a model for all the future covenants God enters into with man. Everybody got that? So there, there's, there's a pattern here that emerges in his dealings with Noah that holds true in his dealings with us and the other covenants that God makes. Now you say, wait, why would God need to make more covenants? Well, look at your notes. This covenant with Noah was not enough to save humanity from sin. Turn back with me to Genesis. Genesis chapter 9. We're about to see a head-scratching story, Okay. Now, God destroyed humanity. He started over with Noah and his family, who was a righteous man, a man that walked with God, but Noah wasn't perfect. Even though God was starting over, there was still sin dwelling in the heart of Noah and in the hearts of his family. So look what happens in Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. 
And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it both laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be a servant. And the flood, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So notice here there's still sin, right? Noah drinks to excess and Noah gets drunk to the point where he is not, uh, he is not um, um, careful uh, with 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 his with his nakedness and his son comes in uh, Ham comes in and sees him and, and and Ham is is somehow we don't know the, exactly what happened he's somehow irresponsible uh, and does not take this seriously and because of this Noah uh, curses Ham's son Canaan and he says it there a couple of times that Ham was the father of Canaan now we're going to get into this next week about the descendants of Ham and and. Shem and Japheth, but there is a a false, uh, ridiculous teaching out there related to the curse of Ham. You ever heard the teaching on the curse of Ham? It basically, it's a justification for slavery for certain people on the earth because, well, they just got what was coming to them because Ham was cursed, and God ordained that a certain group of people. Uh, Ham's descendants are cursed with slavery, and so people have used the curse of Ham of a certain group of people to justify their forced slavery. Any preacher that preaches that should have their Bible and their ordination taken away. It's ridiculous. has no biblical warrant. First of all, the curse wasn't on Ham, the curse was on Canaan. And Canaan was, uh, was the, Canaan settled in what's now known as the Middle East, People that talk about the curse of Ham talk about people that settled in Africa, uh, the, 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 the continent of Africa. Uh, the curse wasn't on the continent of Africa. The curse wasn't on Ham. The curse was on his son Canaan who was in the Middle East. So you can't, you can't even make that connection. So that, that is so silly. And the fact that God cursed Canaan does not justify humans taking other humans into slavery. He's just pronouncing that because of the sin in this line, in this lineage, there would be, there would be great, great consequences for this family. And so that, that whole curse of, of Ham thing is, is just really ridiculous. And if you ever hear it, you need, to, you need to navigate away from that preacher or that teaching or that book or close the book because it has no biblical warrant, no biblical justification. We'll get some more into that in chapter 10 next week, but I wanted to kind of address it here very quickly. But notice here the problems. There's still sin in, in people's hearts, right? Noah's getting drunk. There's still wickedness in some way, shape, or form in in Ham's life. And and because that, Canaan is cursed. There's there's wickedness in this family line. And then, in verse uh, 29, Noah dies. So, death is still happening, right? There's still big problems. Sin and death. So, if the covenant was, or stopped with, all I'm going to do is never flood the earth again, humanity would be in a lot of trouble. We need more. We need another covenant, a covenant that can save us from our sin and save us from our death. And so here's what God did. God initiated redemptive covenants. 
he initiated redemptive covenants. He made some more covenants, some more agreements with humanity that provide for our salvation or point us to his provision for our salvation. Number one, let me walk you through four of these. There's the Abrahamic covenant. We're going to study this in detail in Genesis chapter 12. But Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3 teach us that God appears to Abram. And he says, I'm going to give you a descendant, you and Sarah. And I'm going to give your descendant descendants. And through your descendants, I'm going to build a great nation. I'm going to make a great nation. And through your descendants, all the families, all the different people groups of the earth will be blessed. And so we know that Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had Joseph. That was the beginning of the Jewish people, God's chosen nation. And God said, through your descendants, through the Jewish people, I'm going to bless everybody on the face of the earth. Every people group on the face of the earth. How did that happen? Well, one day, through the Jewish people, God sent a Messiah named Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus takes away the sins of the world, right? John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. So, because Jesus died for the sins of the world, anyone from any language, any tribe, any tongue can place their faith in Christ and be blessed with God's salvation. So through the descendants of Abraham came a Messiah that offers the blessing of salvation to all the peoples on the face of the earth. Isn't that cool? That's the the Abrahamic covenant. So that covenant is about God forming a nation, forming a people through whom he would send a Messiah. The Abrahamic covenant. All right? Number two... By the way, if you want to know how to spell Abrahamic, just Abraham and I see on the end, all right? The, the second covenant that points to redemption is the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant. This is the covenant God entered into with Israel at Mount Sinai. This is the formal relationship... Of, former institution of a relationship between God and his chosen people that revealed sin and foreshadowed the solution. The formal institution of a relationship between God and his chosen people that revealed sin and foreshadowed the solution. So the Old Covenant involves the Ten Commandments, right? He gave them the Ten Commandments in Mount Sinai. And it involved which we would call the moral law of God, God's expectations for humanity. And then at Mount Sinai, God gave them the sacrificial system, the sacrificial law, and he gave them the civil law, how you ought to treat each other in society. Sacrificial law, the animals you need to sacrifice, the the burnt offerings, the wave offerings, the, the different offerings that you need to put in place to relate rightly to me. The old covenant, the formal relationship or formal institution of a relationship between God and his chosen people, the Jews, that revealed sin and foreshadowed the solution. Now, the Old Covenant, Ten Commandments, sacrificial system, you know, the killing of bulls and, and lambs and goats, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, all of that was never intended by God to save anybody. As a matter of fact, the Old Covenant could not save. The Old Covenant simply showed us that we need to be saved. It revealed sin and it foreshadowed the solution that God was going to send. Let me explain this a little bit further. Turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. I want to show you how the Old Covenant functions in our life.
Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What then shall we say, the Bible says, that the law is sin? Let's see. Back up to verse 4. Let's back, look, look, I want to establish a little bit of wider context. Look in Romans 7, verse 4. Romans 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. In other words, when we, when we were confronted with the law of God, it showed us our sinful passions. They were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would, have not, I would not have known sin. Did you hear that? If it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't know what sin was. I wouldn't know that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. Were it not for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing, watch this, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through, and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Here's what Paul's saying. When we're confronted with the perfect commandments of God, it shows us how far short we fall. For example, Paul says, when I read the command we shouldn't covet, it made me want to covet. What do you do when you walk through a sign, walk by a sign and it says, do not touch wet paint? What do you want to do? You want to touch it, don't you? That command shows you that you've got some rebellion issues, right? And you weren't even thinking about touching the wall. But when you saw the, the command, do not touch, you wanted to touch the wall, right? Same thing with the law of God. The law of God reveals how rebellious we are. The, the law of God shows us we are not perfect. The law of God shows us we have fallen short of the glory of God. If you don't believe you're a sinner, just go read the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 and see how you've done for your entire life. You see how you've done. And just remember, the Bible says, if you've broken one, it's as if you're guilty of breaking them all. Who in here would say, I've never broken any of the Ten Commandments? Anybody want to raise your hand on that one? None of us. Of course we've broken them. Liar, lying and, and, and all, all the, the commandments, uh, honoring father and mother and not taking the Lord's name in vain and all these different commandments we have we have broken in our life because we're sinners. And the law reveals our sin. The law shows us that we have sin issues in our life. But also the law foreshadowed the solution. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Let me show you how the law that God gave to Israel, starting with the Ten Commandments and involving the sacrificial system and the civil law to Israel, how the law pointed to the solution and God would give us for our sin. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Let me show you something here really quickly. First of all, notice there in verse 1 it says, the law, the law. Underline the law, if you have a pen with you. Underline the law. Now if you go a little bit further in that verse, it says, can never. 
See those two words? Can never. Underline can never. And then underline the two words make perfect. Make perfect. Now that's a long, complicated sentence, but let me sum it up like this. The law can never make perfect. The law doesn't save. The law was never intended to save. It says there, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of those, these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having been once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins. The, the sacrificial, you say, wait, why do they kill all the bulls and all the goats and all the lambs every year? Day of atonement, shedding the blood, sprinkling the blood on the altar, sprinkling the blood on the, the ark of the, why'd they do that? Because they needed to be reminded they were sinners in need of a savior. Every time they sprinkled that blood, every time they killed an innocent animal, they were reminded of their sin. Verse four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the, the sacrificial system was never intended to save. Everyone see that? They weren't saved by keeping the sacrificial system. They were saved by looking forward in faith to what God was going to do by sending us a Savior. And so the Old Covenant, the formal institution of a relationship between God and His chosen people that revealed sin and foreshadowed the solution, the shedding of blood, innocent animals dying for the guilty, the, the, the law taught the people of Israel and teaches us all that blood will have to be shed for us to be saved. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. That's what it says in Leviticus, quoted again in Hebrews. If there's no blood shed, there's, if there's no death in our place, we can never be forgiven. We can never be saved. All of that pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus shedding his blood on the cross. Everybody got that? Old covenant didn't save. It showed people how sinful they were and foreshadowed the saving work of Jesus. But let me show you the next covenant here, the Davidic covenant. Just write the word David and add an I-C on the end. The Davidic covenant. This covenant was made uh, between God and King David. Simply put in 2 Samuel 7 that God will send a king through the lineage of David who will reign eternally. God told David... Eventually, there's going to be someone through your lineage seated on the throne, and they will reign forever. Now, how's that fulfilled? It's fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and he's the king of kings through the lineage of David, and he reigns forever. His reign will never come to an end. That's the Davidic covenant. There would be a king that would reign eternally, which leads me to the last covenant, the new covenant. The new covenant. Abrahamic covenant prepared the way for the Messiah to come through the Jewish people. Old covenant shows us we're sinners that need a savior. We need blood to be shed on our behalf. The Davidic covenant promised an eternal, eternally reigning king, but we need a savior. And that's where the new covenant comes in. So what is the new covenant? This agreement that God makes. It is that God offers the forgiveness of sins, and inner transformation. God offers the forgiveness of sins and inner 
transformation. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 8. I want to show you what the Bible says about the new covenant. The new covenant is mentioned in Jeremiah prophetically and Ezekiel. But here in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews helps us to understand what the new covenant is all about. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6. He writes, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So he's saying Christ offers us a covenant that's better than the old covenant. He says, for that first covenant, the old covenant, that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. In other words, if people could be saved by the old covenant, why would there need to be a new covenant, Right? But again, the, the old covenant can never make perfect. The law can never make perfect. So we need a new covenant. We need a way to be saved. Look what it says in verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So it's not going to be an old covenant. It's going to be a different covenant. For they did not continue in my covenant, and, I sh- so I showed, so, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So not only are we sinners that have broken God's law, we are unable to keep God's law because we have an old wicked heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? So we all have a a wicked heart. We all all have a sin nature, so we're, we're not able to keep God's commandments, right? That's why we all fall short. So if we're ever going to please God, if we're ever going to live a holy life, we've got to have some help. So God says, here's part of the new covenant. I'm going to change you from the inside out. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to come and make you a brand new person so you can begin to obey me. You can begin to live up to my law and glorify me with your life. That's awesome. This new agreement is we can be changed on the inside. Pretty good news, right? But even if God changes us, we've still blown it, right? Our sins have to be forgiven. We'll look at the last verse. Verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So he's saying here, now God enters into relationship with us based upon the new covenant. And if you are a recipient of the new covenant, it means your sins are forgiven, and you've been given a new heart, a changed life, to please God with your life. You can read some more about this over in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 15. Look there with me very quickly. Hebrews 9, verse 11. Let's us know how God made the new covenant available. It says in Hebrews 9, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hey, look at me real quickly. When you receive the redemption of Jesus Christ, it lasts forever. 
God doesn't save you and then snatch it back from you. His redemption, his salvation, his forgiveness is eternal. That's pretty good news, right? And he says, securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a, here it is, new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So here's what he's saying. How do you receive the promises of the new covenant? Inner transformation, forgiveness of sins. You receive them through Jesus. He, Jesus is the mediator of this covenant. The only way you can receive those promises is by receiving Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus died on the cross to make forgiveness and transformation available to you. And when you embrace him as your Lord and Savior, he gives you these promises that we call the new covenant. So the new covenant is for everyone that knows Jesus. Everybody got that? For everyone that is saved. So God made this promise to Noah. I'm not going to flood the earth again and destroy humanity through a worldwide flood. But that's not enough for us because we still have our sin issue. We still face death, right? So God foreshadowed the covenant he was going to give us through Christ, the new covenant. And then God sent his son and Jesus died on the cross and Jesus rose from the dead. So now anyone from any tribe or tongue can place their faith in Christ and experience forgiveness and experience inner transformation. Hey, by the way, real quickly... Notice both of these parts are part of the new covenant. A lot of people treat the new covenant like it's just fire insurance from hell. Right? If I I pray to receive Christ, then I'm not going to hell. So let me just, let me get that over with. I'm going to pray the prayer and not go to hell and I'm good to go, right? But notice there's another part to the covenant. It's not just forgiveness of sins, it's inner transformation. God's going to change your life. So if you you think you're a believer, but there's never been a, a, a change in your life, Maybe you haven't received the new covenant through Christ. Because when Jesus gets a hold of it, he's going to change you. Got that? Now, how, does all, how do all of these covenants tie in to the covenant that God made to Noah? How does that covenant to Noah, a, a picture, a model for all future covenants? Well, let me give you a couple of statements and we'll wrap up. Number one, God always keeps his covenants. You can trust him. Turn back to Genesis 9 with me. Genesis 9, I want to show you the emphasis in this passage. Genesis chapter 9, verse 9. The Lord repeats himself here because he wants Noah to understand, I don't, I don't forfeit my promises. I keep my promises. Look what he says in verse 9. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. With every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. So he told him, I'm going to establish him a covenant. That's once. Then he says in verse 11, again, I establish my covenant with you. Says it again. That never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant. Another mention that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant fourth time between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth 
and the bow was seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant, fifth time, that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant, sixth time, between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant, seventh time, that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Do you see God repeating himself? I'm going to make a covenant, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to make a promise, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to make a promise, a sign, I'm going to keep it. You can trust God because the same way that God kept his covenant to Noah, God keeps all of his covenants. And if you know Jesus, and God has promised you forgiveness, and God has promised you inner transformation, you can take it to the bank. Amen? God always keeps his covenants. You can trust him. Number two, God accompanies his covenants with signs. Remember and celebrate. Remember and celebrate. So what was the sign of the covenant that God made with Noah? Come, Please someone answer this. Rainbow, okay. I was going to say, if we didn't get that, we have to start over at the beginning. All right. Rainbow. But it's interesting to note that with every covenant God makes, he accompanies it with a sign. For example, the, the covenant with Abraham. Does anyone remember the sign of that covenant with Abraham? Anyone remember? What's that? Let me give you a hint. What's that? So, well, yeah, he did. That's good. He told him, look in the stars in the sky. Uh, just like you can't count them, you won't be able to number your descendants. Sand on the sea. But he gave a very specific physical sign to the Jewish males. Circumcision. All right? And circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 17, verse 11. Genesis 17, verse 11. He says to Abraham, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. So he's saying there's this sign. And the point of this is to remind you of my promise. To remind you of the promise I made with you, Abraham, to make you a great nation. Then... God made a covenant with Israel, the old covenant, there at Mount Sinai. you remember the sign that God put into place to remind them of that covenant? You want to guess, what was the sign God put into place with Israel when he instituted what we call the old covenant at Mount Sinai? Any guesses? What's that? Ten Commandments, he put those on stone, and they kept those as a reminder of the moral law. So that'd be one. The Sabbath. The Sabbath was a covenant. Look, uh, a sign of the covenant. Turn with me to uh, Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31. We're almost through, but look with me. Exodus chapter 31. Verse 16. 
Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. Then in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. On the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And so he gives them the Sabbath as a sign to remind them of that covenant that they would uh, then relate to God through. The old covenant sign of the Sabbath. So, if circumcision was the sign of the covenant with Abraham and the Sabbath was the sign of the covenant with Israel, what's the sign of the new covenant? What are the signs of the new covenant? There are two of them. Anybody want to guess? The cross. Uh, there's, there is a sign that points to the cross. What is that sign? I'll give you a hint. I grew up in a Baptist church, and on the front underneath the pulpit there was this table, and on the front of the table it said, This do in remembrance of me. Lord's Supper, right? Lord's Supper. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. I want to show you this. Matthew 26, verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the what? Covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so every time we participate in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of the broken body of Christ, the shed blood of Christ, and that is a sign of the new covenant. It's a reminder of the new covenant. So every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating what Jesus Christ has done to forgive us and to change us, right? God gave it to us to remember. This do in remembrance of me. He says, this is a reminder of the covenant, that offers forgiveness of sins. But there's another, there's another sign of the new covenant. Anyone else want to guess what it is? Lord's Supper. What's the other one? What's that? Baptism. Baptism. Baptism is the sign of the covenant. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So he's saying the new covenant is different than the old. The old covenant, there was the sign of physical circumcision, but the new covenant, God does some, some heart surgery. He does some inner uh, transformation. And then he says in the next verse, having been buried with him in baptism it, it in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So there's this correlation here between circumcision, this sign of the old covenant, and baptism, this sign of the new covenant. And so every time we see someone baptized, we are celebrating inner transformation, right? New life. Because over in Romans 6 it says that when someone's baptized, they're baptized uh, their old self dies, and they're raised to walk in newness of life. And every time someone's baptized, we picture them, them dying, their old self dying, and then becoming a brand new creation in Christ. And so every time we see a baptism, we are reminded of the new covenant, inner transformation, new life, forgiveness of sins. So anytime we participate in the Lord's Supper, anytime we see a baptism, we should think new covenant. 
the, 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 the promises God has made to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. We should remember that covenant and we should celebrate that covenant because it is, it is really, really good news. So we look closely at this covenant God made with Noah, but when we back up and say this is a pattern for all His other covenants, we see that just like He made a, a promise to Noah and... He makes a sign to go with it. He makes promises to us and gives us signs to go with those promises. And just like God never failed on his promise to Noah, God never fails on his promises to us. That is the glory of the new covenant.